Okay. Good morning, everybody. I don't particularly like it when people do like I can't hear you. Say it again. But in that case, it was necessary. <laughs> um, all right. Get situated with all my things here. Okay. Uh, we have been in a teaching sermon in a sermon series called How to Read the Bible. Uh, we've been looking at Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, this passage of scripture, which is like the keynote passage, teaches us about how God speaks, the nature of God speaking. And by looking at how God speaks, we've been able to determine, to determine how we should hear. What does it mean to read his word, the Bible, what does it mean to respond to his living word, Jesus? How should we read the Bible? How should we listen to God? Um, all of those things. And this is our last week in the series. So uh, it's really important. So make sure everybody pays really close attention. To, this is where we get all the good stuff. I don't know why I said that. That was, that was just hype. Uh, forget about hype. We don't want to do hype. I'll tell you what, why don't we do this? Let's read the scripture and then we'll pray and then we'll then we'll then we'll get up. Okay? How about that? We've been standing for the reading of God's word, and this passage, since it's been the same for five weeks, we've been reading it out loud together. So I want to invite you to read this out loud with me. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you that you have spoken in the past. Thank you that you are speaking now. Lord, I pray that you will give us, as Jesus called it, ears to hear what you have to say. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear you, not just with our brains, but with our hearts, and that we would go out of here living differently because of what you said. Lord, we love you. All of this is for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Let's start by just a, like a three-minute review of everything we've learned in this series, looking at Hebrews 1 through 3. We have learned um, that we should read the Bible theologically. It's a, it's a God book. It's not a me book. It's about God, and it's for God. God is the center of everything in the Bible. Uh, so when we read it, that's what we're doing. We're reading about God, 
We're looking in on the life of God as he's showing himself to us. In the past, God spoke. He is the speaker. We are the listeners. We want to read the Bible Christologically, which means that Jesus is the big idea. The Bible is about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the main subject. Jesus is God uh, with us. He's God coming to us. Um, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says that, that Jesus is uh, the way that God has spoken now in these last days. He is the living word of God. He accomplishes God's purposes. He shows us who God is. We want to read the Bible. Jesus, even if it doesn't say his name, uh, he is on every page. It's either looking forward to him or it's looking back to him. Uh, the Bible is a Jesus book. We want to read the Bible historically. He, I love that Hebrews 1 says, in the past, God spoke. But now, God is speaking. It, the Bible is a book that's bound up in time. And we want to read it that way. The Bible didn't just appear yesterday uh, for you. The Bible has come together over centuries. It's a historical book. It gives us a record of the people of God over time. It gives us a record of how people have thought about God. It gives us a record of how God has spoken to his people. It's a historical book, and we want to read it that way. The whole Bible is not right now. The Bible is a story of history. It's all relevant for right now. It's a historical book, and we want to keep that in mind. Related, we want to read the Bible textually. God spoke. He used words. Words are important in the Bible. We want to read down to the very words and phrases. So the grammar is important. It's important that we read with at least an awareness and curiosity to what was said in the original languages. It's important that we keep in mind that like what I have here, this is this is an English translation. Um, this was this is not the original text that was inspired directly by the Holy Spirit. Uh, those original documents, we don't have them. We can, using scholarly tools, uh, see pretty closely what they were. Uh, but the text is something we always need to be wrestling with. Uh, genres of literature are important. We don't read the Psalms the same way that we would read First or Second Chronicles, or we would read the Gospels. The text is important. We we learned that last week. Uh, we learned that we want to read the Bible redemptively. Uh, God spoke in the last days to Jesus, His Son, and Jesus is the one who makes purification for sins. Jesus is the one who finished the work of redemption and is set at God's right hand. The Bible is a redemption book. It's a liberating book. We've talked a lot about how redemption means liberation. To redeem someone is to liberate them. Back in the old days, uh, actually around the time the New Testament was written, the word re to redeem was actually used pretty commonly in the slave market. You would go, I would go, and you 
purchase a slave and then you would set them free, you would be called a redeemer. It would be a work of redemption. The Bible talks about redemption and almost always the point of reference is God liberating the people of Israel out of slavery of Egypt. The Bible is a tool for redemption. That is what the Bible is for. That is why God speaks to set people free. So when we read it, we want to read, keep in mind, is are we reading this in a way that is liberating us to Christ, to fellowship with God from our sins? Or are we reading this in a way that's binding us? That's one of the ways we can know if we're reading it right. So that's as far as we've gotten over five weeks, if we don't count the week that Pat was here um, doing something else. So six weeks chronologically, five weeks. Anyway, that's as far as we've gotten. So how do we close this? What's, what's the one more principle we can pull from Hebrews 1, 1, 2, 3 about how to read the Bible? Well, what I want to show here is here in the book of Hebrews, it's this little thing. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to me, Pastor Charlie, to tell you guys what he said. No. He has spoken to you and you and you and you individually on your own terms. No. He has spoken to us. Us. The usness of this text is what I want to highlight today. The principle here, the big idea, how do we read the Bible? We read the Bible communally. We read the Bible communally. We read it as a community, as God's word for the community. The Bible is an us book, not just a me book. It's an us book. We want to read, interpret, apply it as a community. So what does that mean? How do we do that? How do we read the Bible communally? Well, the sermons have three things. Okay? What does it mean to be communal, to be us Bible readers? Well, three things. We want to read it together. We want to interpret it together. And we want to grow or apply it together. Okay? Reading, interpreting, and applying or growing. All of these things, we want to do them together. Let's talk about it. Let's start with reading together. Why is it such a big deal that we read the Bible together? Why not can't I just make my primary Bible reading something I do on my own, something private? Um, well, I don't know if you were like me when I grew up. I grew up in a big mega church type environment where we had, you know, big screens and rock bands and uh, lots of things to, lots of, to attract people to church. And one of the things that happens in big mega church lands very often um, in sermons or in classes or in teaching, people are given very practical, hands-on. Uh, take this home, do this, uh, very simple things to do to grow in your faith. Kind of part of that culture. Tell me what to do. Give me something uh, tangible. 
Um, and one of the things I learned to do, one of those tangible, what does it mean to be a Christian things that I learned growing up in that environment was this tool for spiritual growth called a personal quiet time. You guys ever heard of having a quiet time? Uh, I was taught that what you should do if you want to grow to being a, close to God or a really good Christian is every single day make sure you have a personal quiet time. And you can, it could be just as short as five minutes or it could be as long as 30 minutes. But the primary focus of your quiet time is private Bible reading. You read the Bible, uh, you pray, you reflect, you take some notes, and then you move on. And if you have a quiet time, now I'm, I'm being a little hyperbolic. I'm sure this wasn't taught exactly this way, but the way that I kind of learned it was if I have a quiet time, I'm going to have a good day. I'd be a good Christian. If I don't have a quiet time, I'm going to have a bad day. I'm going to be a bad Christian that day. It doesn't work that way. But the point is, I grew up learning that Bible reading was something that primarily in my life needed to exist in my private world. We read the Bible publicly on Sunday mornings when the pastor read the scripture before the sermon. Maybe in a group Bible study, but that was more about study and was less about reading. Reading the Bible, that's on me or on you. Now, there's a lot of good things in that whole deal. But I want to stand and say graciously toward the place that I came from, um, personal quiet time, that's good. But where Bible reading should primarily exist in my life, the most serious, the most weighty, maybe it's not just a private thing. Bible reading by design is meant to be shared. By design. Let me show you. Actually, by design, and by its own uh, command. So, the way we got the Bible, God speaking in the past through the prophets, we can go back and we can look at the lives of the prophets and how they, they wrote the Bible down and what they did with it. But let's start with Moses. In Exodus 14, God had brought the people out of Egypt. He redeemed them. He liberated them. They crossed the Red Sea. You guys, there's a movie. Uh, and then they fought this battle with the Amalekites. And they won the battle with the Amalekites. We have gotten out of Egypt and we've gotten through the first round of hardship. We can finally rest. And God calls Moses, the prophet, the leader of the people, calls Moses and he says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down everything that you guys just experienced. Write it down um, in the scroll, tablets, or whatever. Write it down. And then what I want you to do is I want you to turn around after you write it, and I want you to read it out loud to your friend Joshua. And then after that, then, then after you've read it out loud to Joshua, then you have the record. Right on the first day, that God called Moses to start writing Bible down. He said, as you write it, read it out loud to somebody else. That's what we're doing here. When Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the law, uh, we see in Exodus 24, only Moses went up to the very top of the mountain to get the law from God, to meet with God. 
But then he comes down the mountain and tells the people what God says, and it's down there in the presence of the people that Moses writes down what he heard on top of the mountain. So Bible is actually being written not in private quiet time, but in public in the front of everybody by design. Moses, before the people, uh, you know, 40 years later, before he dies, before the people go into the promised land with Joshua, he goes up on a hill and he gives his farewell sermon. We know it as the book of Deuteronomy, right before the people go into the land. And what does he do? Well, we can read the book of Deuteronomy and we can see that the primary thrust of what Moses did, the end of his life, this great prophet Bible writer, what he did is he stood up in front of all the people and what did he do? He read what he had written. He read the scripture, the law, out loud to the people. And he makes sure that they know that that's something that they're supposed to practice regularly. After they go into the land, Joshua, their new leader, does the same thing. He sits them down. They open up the book. They open up the scrolls. He starts reading the Bible to them. Makes it known that this is what they're supposed to do. In fact, it says in, in uh Moses had said in Deuteronomy 31 that every seven years there was supposed to be a national public Bible reading in Israel. It was supposed to be that every seven years the whole nation came together and someone would stand up and read all of the scriptures out loud. Joshua did it. But what's interesting is after people got into the promised lands, they started going about their lives. After Joshua did the first one, they sort of forgot about it, and it didn't really happen again. Until after uh, the exile to Babylon, and then the people, the remnant came back under Ezra and Nehemiah. And we can read in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, well, actually, no, there was one time when King Josiah found the scrolls in the temple. What did he do? He made sure there was public Bible reading. Ezra and Nehemiah, after people came back from exile, they stood up. What did they do? Public Bible reading. The point is, throughout the Old Testament, we see the people of God reading the Bible out loud together. We see the people who wrote the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, like Moses, writing down their words publicly, reading it out loud. We had a reading a few weeks ago out of Habakkuk, where God told the prophet, maybe you remember this, God told the prophet Habakkuk, hey, I'm about to tell you something, but I want you to write it down when I say it on tablets, and make sure you write it big enough for someone to read it while they're running. Remember that? So, so a herald can run to the people and win. I hope you see the point. The Bible itself, within the actual text, the way that it was put together, was designed to be a public document. It was written publicly. As it's being written, it's being read publicly. And when the people were obeying God, they're reading the Bible publicly. When the people were forgetting God, they stopped reading the Bible publicly. Public Bible reading and covenant faithfulness in the Old Testament go together. And when the people practice public faith, covenant faithfulness, we see them reading the scriptures communally. When we see them drifting from God's covenant, 
public Bible reading stops. That is a big deal. So when the author of Hebrews writes, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors, and now he has spoken to us. He wasn't saying anything that good Hebrew followers of Jesus that would have been reading this letter would be unfamiliar with. Of course, when God speaks, he speaks to the people, to the community. God speaking is a communal affair. Yeah. Duh. But I think so many of us, if you're like me, we live in a very individualistic culture. We carry around our own private internet. Uh, we read books privately. We do music and audiobooks with headphones. Uh, we have our own, we don't really watch TV the same time other people do anymore. We stream. We don't listen to the radio anymore. We stream. Everything's private. And I think it's good for us to remember that Bible reading is not supposed to be primarily private. Now, does that mean you can't read it on your own? No, you should read it on your own. But its primary place in your life is it private or public? Um, it's interesting that throughout history, throughout church history, we go not just like after the Bible, during the time of the church, uh, sort of like in Old Testament Israel, that um, times of spiritual renewal and revival in the church very often are paired with you know, public or group Bible reading. I think about the Reformation. It was a time when Bibles were being made available in the vernacular for the first time in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And during the time of Martin Luther and William Tyndale and all those early first-generation reformers, little churches like us, we would sometimes do in like a waiting list. When are we going to get our English Bible? And then we would get the English Bible, and we would only have one for our church. Not everybody would get one because they were so expensive. They had to be, you know, the printing press was just brand new, and each letter had to be placed by hand. So what would happen is the Bible would come in, and it would be put placed here on the pulpit. Sometimes we'd chain to the pulpit, so no one would steal it. And we'd have church here on Sunday morning. But at various times throughout the week, one of us, the pastor, or maybe somebody else, would come up here, we would open the doors, and we'd start at the beginning and stand here and read the Bible. And people would just come in and sit and listen. And we would do Bible reading. And it was during that time when public Bible reading was renewed that we had this great reformation. In Germany, a couple generations, few generations after the Reformation, when the Reformation had kind of cooled, and uh, the, the, the Lutheran uh, Reformed Church in Germany would very much become the state church, it's all official again. Uh, there was a thing that happened called the Pietist Movement, that within churches, little small groups of people started gathering in homes on Sunday evenings or sometime during the week, uh, uh, and they would just read the Bible together. And out of this little movement sparked this great revival in the German church and became known as the Pietists or the Moravian 
movement. And there are churches in Portland today, and maybe even some of you have come from backgrounds, but you could trace your spiritual lineage back to that movement. Because people have read the Bible publicly. Uh, the English Puritans, or our Presbyterian tradition, gets where we get our heritage. Something similar happened with the English Puritans and the early Scots Presbyterians. But a big emphasis on family Bible reading and on community small groups. In England, the big emphasis was on family worship. In Scotland, it was in community small groups. What's interesting is in early Scottish Presbyterianism in some places uh, where these community, you know, communities of friends or neighbors would get together for Bible reading, it was some place that was considered illegal because what if they interpret the Bible the wrong way? What if they go against their pastor? And they had to read secretly. But out of these movements came spiritual renewal. And this church exists here in Portland today, in part because the renewal that happened with this practice of community Bible reading. Here on the West Coast in Oregon, one reason why we have here on the West Coast, there's lots of uh, churches that, with names like something something Bible church or something something um, chapel. Uh, back in the 1960s and 70s, uh, late 60s, early 70s, and after, there was a huge movement on the West Coast called the Jesus Movement. Many of you have heard about people getting together to read their Bibles and pastors on Sunday dropping the whole topical sermon series thing, kind of like what I'm doing here, and just say, hey, on Sundays what we're going to do is we're going to start in Genesis and we're going to go through and preach verse by verse. And many of you have come from churches from that tradition rooted in Bible reading. Here is the point. When we use the Bible the way it was designed to be used, it works. It does things. When you use the right tool, the right way, for the right job, jobs get done. And many of us long to see our families, long to see our groups of friends, long to see our church grow and experience renewal. Well, renewal is on the Holy Spirit. That's something he does. But we can't make it happen. But there is something we can do to prepare ourselves for his movement. We can get, it's simple. We get together and read the Bible together. This is part of why we read the scripture, part of our liturgy on Sunday. This is part of why in our church, we have two home groups in our church. John and Janine lead one. You raise your hands. Uh, Scott and Shirley, who are out sick today, they lead one that meets on Zoom. Uh, you don't have to be a part of one, but we have them. Some of you are members of families. There's Bibles in your houses. Some of you have friends. Read the Bible together. Okay, let's move on. We read it together. We can drill that into your head. We interpret it together. What do we do with what we read? Well, reading requires interpretation. And we need to interpret it together. You know, it's fascinating. Community, group, public, whether it's in families or in small groups or out in the town, Bible reading has, throughout history, has coincided with movements of renewal and revival in the church. But it has also coincided with uh, the rise of heterodox or heretical uh, or even cult like movements 
in the church. Did you know that? Very often it's community Bible reading that exists right at the beginning of the cult <laughs> or of some kind of heterodox group. So if we get together and read our Bibles together, how do we know if we're going to experience some kind of orthodox renewal or if we're going to be led into some sort of weird cult situation? Well, the difference between the two is how we interpret what we read. And heterodox or cult-like movements, interpretation usually falls upon one person who interprets for the whole group. There's a leader, there's a special teacher, there's an unquestioned professor. Somebody says, this is how you read it. That's it. But in movements of Holy Spirit renewal in the church, the way we interpret scripture doesn't just fall down to one human person. It happens in the context of the shared communal conversation. We read a second ago from Acts 15 the story of the Jerusalem Council. This is a beautiful example of how this works. In the early church, uh, Jesus, no surprise, was the Jewish Messiah. Early church was a Jewish movement. But then we read in the book of Acts, Gentiles, non-Jews, start believing and start coming to Christ, right? The apostle Paul feels like it's his job, that God has called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And we read all throughout the New Testament, non-Jewish people are coming to Christ. What well, we read in Acts 15, that some of the some of the Jewish believers, wanting to honor God, wanting to be faithful, they had read in their Bibles, probably from Genesis chapter 17, that God's covenant of grace he made with Abraham. Jesus came to renew and fulfill that we're living in as Christians is an everlasting covenant. And the forever sign of that covenant is circumcision. Therefore, when somebody enters into the community of grace, when somebody becomes a believer, if they're male, they're circumcised. Because God instituted that with Abraham, and he said it was supposed to be forever. And we take our Bible seriously. Therefore, if a Gentile becomes a Christian, they need to become a Jew and become circumcised. And this started spreading around. Well, the Apostle Paul and some others said, I don't think so. We've seen Gentiles come to Christ, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're included, and it's clear that they know God, and they haven't been circumcised, and that just is what it is. And you guys are reading the Bible wrong. And there was a huge disagreement. So what did they do? They called together a council of the church's leadership, the apostles and the elders. It says that, I love how it says that the church gathered, and then it says that the apostles and the elders gathered. I think, I think what it's saying there is that the church gathered by way of its careful Charlie representative form of church government. <laughs> but they gathered together, and what did they do? They opened up the Bible. James reads it out loud. They argue. They share their stories. They pray. They interpret it together. And they come to the conclusion that from the beginning, God's plan was always to include Gentiles. 
and that Gentiles, males, don't need to be circumcised. They interpreted the scripture together. They interpreted it redemptively. They didn't go back to Genesis 17 and said, the Bible says it, that settles it, it's done. No. What has God been doing in his redemptive plan over time? What was he doing then, and what is he doing now? Where is liberation taking place in the name of Jesus here in our world? Then they went back and then they read the text. They interpreted it together. And we didn't read this in our Bible reading before because it would have been too long to fit in the bulletin. But when they finish, they make their whole decision. They decide a few things. Gentile Christians don't need to be circumcised. It's not necessary. But let's ask Gentile Christians to be respectful of the customs of their Jewish Christians. That was like the second half. And then they wrote a letter to go be delivered to all the churches where this controversy was happening so everyone would know. And in the letter, it says this. Um, greetings. We have heard... We have heard that some of you, that some went out from, from us without our authorization. And they disturbed you, troubling your mind about what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men um, and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who risked their lives in the name of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we what we are by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You have to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, from sexual immorality, and you do well to reveal these things. So they send a letter, hey, these are the guys delivering it. By the way, we met, and the only thing that Gentiles need to Gentile Christians need to do is don't worry about the circumcision thing. Just make sure you're respectful of the kosher customs of your Jewish brothers and sisters. That's the letter. Here's the kicker. This little line where they say, it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit. And the apostles and the elders gather together to determine this dispute over what does the Bible say. And they interpret it communally. Who do they blame the interpretation on? Who do they say made the decision? They say, we made it. And the Holy Spirit made it. Guys, that's crazy. What they were saying is when we interpret the scripture together as a community, we're interpreting it as the community of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit who inspired the text works in the community to translate and interpret the text. The, the theological word is to illuminate the text in our hearts and in our minds. Now, this was the first of many church councils. The apostles, uh, many church councils. The, the, the next big one that was huge, major one, was the Council of Nicaea. After that, we have the Council of Constantinople. Uh, make the list. And we have a list of creeds and confessions of the church. You know why we take the creeds and confessions of the church seriously? Why we read the Apostles' Creed every week? Why when we talk about Trinity, we want to go back to the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed? Why we use the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms as, as our guide as we interpret the Bible? Why do we do these things? Why do we use these things in our church? Because they are the record 
of the communal interpretation of the people of God over time. They're the record, the footprints, if you will, of the Holy Spirit interpreting the scriptures in the community over time. When I stand up here and I preach, my word isn't the final word. Jesus is the final word. And Jesus is the Lord of all in the church. The church is the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit illuminates the word. Where is he? Am I the only one who has the Spirit? No. Every believer here has the Spirit. And the ones who came before us have the Spirit. So when we read the Bible and interpret it, is it just what Pastor Charlie says, his word, and that's it? No. It's the interpretive voice of the community of the Holy Spirit. That's why I'm accountable to a presbytery. That's why you guys can ask me questions and challenge me. That's why I'm not always right. That's why we use creeds and confessions. Now, what about your favorite podcaster or your favorite author? Is it their word and that's it? No. This is a community. And I do kind of want to slip in. You guys can talk to me and ask me questions. If your favorite podcaster or author is not someone you can talk to and ask questions and have a conversation with, keep that in mind. Because Bible interpretation is supposed to be communal, conversational. Okay. We read it together, interpret it together, and last, because we need to wrap it up, we grow together. We grow together. Um, a few years ago, I was having, uh, I went and met, I was having, uh, I went and met my buddy Ben, who's another pastor in town. We went and met for happy hour. So we're sitting over beer and we're talking about church growth. Um, part of my job as a pastor is to think about ways our church might be able to grow. So me and Ben were asking, what, what are you guys doing? What are we doing? What's the deal with church growth? What do we want to do? What do we not want to do? Bouncing ideas off of one another. And then in a moment of brilliance, Ben said, Charlie, you, know, you want to know something? This is really important. Uh, just remember that what you call people with is what you call people to. And I said, what? And he goes, what you call them with is what you call them to. And I said, I don't really get it. He goes, <laughs> he said it again. What you call them with how you bring people in, how you reach out, how you teach, how we do church is what you call them to. What Ben said that day rattled me because it is so true. Folks, the way that we um, practice our faith publicly, the way that we invite people, the way that we express ourselves in our faith, they, they think they are pictures of what we believe to be true, what we believe our faith to actually mean. And if we are a Bible authoritarian interpretive church, 
And but we tell people to come into the kingdom where everyone is accepted, where everyone's loved, not one is greater than the other because the greatest are the least, and the one who has the right to be the greatest of all has made himself a servant. But I stand up here and I teach with a hammer, and we get in Bible conversations and we don't listen to others. And we have to have the last word and the last argument on every matter of doctrine. And we are uncomfortable with the idea of any sort of doctrinal shift or growth or change in our church because this is fixed. Is what we're calling people with showing what we call people to? No. God has been God who is three in one has sent Jesus to invite us and to bring us into fellowship and to community with him. God, who is the Redeemer, has set us free from our sins in Christ. He has spoken the final word, and that final word is living and also has a set of ears to listen. That's what we're called to. So the kind of faith that we practice as we do Bible together should look like that. Humble, communal, focused on redemption, focused on Christ, aware of historical movements, listening. That is what God calls us to. That is what God frees us to. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, to prophets, and many times in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, who he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. And the son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. 